Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. Happy New Year. As we say in Korean, 새해 복 많이 받으세요. It is the year of the tiger in uh, 2022. And so we wish everybody uh, health, wealth, safety, happiness, and all the things that are near and dear to you and all those you love. My name is Jerry Wan, and this is our podcast called Dear Asian Americans, where we share uh, Asian American stories to help uh, celebrate, amplify, and to just be together in community as we uh, go on through our lives uh, here in America. Um, today, my guest is a dear friend of mine, uh, Dan Matthews. Uh, Dan, a.k.a. Dan, is his uh, musical and, and stage name. Uh, many of you probably have heard his music, seen his documentary, um, or just been a part of amazing events and organizations that he's been a part of, particularly if you are uh, in and around Southern California. Uh, really stoked to share this conversation with you. Uh, we recorded this in the middle of last year uh, when he dropped some music. You can find that on Spotify. Just look up uh, Dan, a.k.a. Dan, or go to Dan, a.k.a. Dan.com, which will take you directly to his YouTube page. Um, and now he's got even no more music coming out. So uh, we'll play a song at the end of the track or at the end of the interview. Uh, so I encourage you to stay till the end uh, to listen. Uh, really grateful for Dan, uh, for one, being a great friend, uh, being a great community member, and for coming on to our show to uh, to uh, share his story. So uh, again, Happy New Year. Hope you had a great one uh, as, you, as you celebrate with families. And uh, above all, uh, please continue to stay safe and healthy as we uh, navigate COVID. And so thanks again for tuning in to the Eurasian Americans. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with the one and only Dan Matthews. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans and hope you're doing well. And whenever you're listening to this, we hope that the world is in a, a better and more safer place as we continue to deal with coronavirus. Can't believe we're still saying this after 18 months, but we still are. And so do what you can to get yourself protected. Get vaccinated, please. And if nothing else, to make sure that our healthcare systems do not get overwhelmed. So that people who may need those services for their cancer or car accidents or all these things that we typically are able to get help for, people that have access to that. And so with that being said, really excited to talk to my guest today. Uh, we've been friends for a while, and then he's actually guested on another one of our Just Like Media shows, The Chanchi Show, and probably have heard his music and uh, perhaps watched his documentary at some point telling a part of his story. But uh, Dan Matthews joins us today. We're both in L.A., but we're obviously not in the same room, but really excited to learn a little bit more about his personal journey. Uh, we're going to be listening to him tell us about his music. Maybe we'll play a song on, on the uh, outro so you guys can get a feel for the music and uh, just excited to hear what he's been working on as well. So, Dan, welcome to the show. What's up? What's going on, Jerry? I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me back on. That might have been the most enthusiastic intro we've heard from any guest in now it will be like 130 episodes. So thanks for that, man. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm You're excited. Go. Yeah. <laughs> any chance I get to be able to see anybody, I get excited, especially in the format of podcasting, which is a very fun format. Oh, man. Let's start with some of your most recent exciting news. Uh, tell us about the new music that launched this week or this month, rather. You know, the story behind it. And let's get people excited to hear the rest of your story by starting with your music. Let's go. That's what I'm I'm here to talk about. And I'm grateful for the chance to be able to discuss this. So I'm Dan. A little backstory. I came on previously. Actually, it was the census episode. So I came on to your, your podcast to talk about the census. 
And then I did John T. Show to talk about adoption because I'm also a Korean adoptee. But one of the, the other things that is a part of my life is I do music as well. And I am currently putting out some new music. I've got about four songs out currently. And maybe by the time that this comes out, I'll have another two or three songs out. But I've been releasing music over the last couple of weeks and really thrilled about it. Because so far, I, at least in my opinion, I think that it's some of the best stuff that I've written and is a good self-reflection of how I'm feeling. And hopefully, uh, maybe it's how some other people are feeling about their lives in this, this moment of our lives. Dude, I totally forgot you were on the show before with the census stuff. So I apologize. It's been <laughs> been a year. Uh, it's been, geez, man. You've been able to do some cool stuff specifically related to your music and through the work that you do with International Secret Agents. You recently featured on Amazon Music. You performed at some legendary venues across LA and across the world and have gotten to work with some other amazing household names in music. And so would love to get to know you and help our audience get to know the man behind Dan. Share with us your Korean-American journey and how you came to this country under what circumstance and you know your earlier years of your life, man. Thanks, Jerry. Well, I, I think that I'm excited to talk Asian-American music. Like, if that's the theme for this episode, Asian-American music, I would love to talk about that with you because I think that we've been in the community for a while and we've seen the different people that have been in the music scene kind of come up uh, uh, collectively. So it's exciting time to like be able to talk about that. Uh, with regards to my own music and how it, it informs my story in America. Yeah, as an adoptee, I grew up in Southern California. And one of the, at the time that I was in high school and junior high, Lincoln Park was a big thing. And uh, one of their, the MC in that group is Mike Shinoda, who was at that time, the only Asian American MC that was visible that I really saw. And so it was through him, I was like, oh my God, this guy looks like me and is playing music that is super dope. And so from that, I think it really inspired me and the type of music that I'm making now, which is more like alternative rock hip hop. And Mike Shinoda was such a big, big, big inspiration for me in, in, in the direction that I went. And so it was through that that I started doing music in high school. And I think that actually, because I was adopted, I don't know if I was able to emote or I was able to really talk about my feelings in a, a good way. At that time, it wasn't like there was therapy for high school students and so, or none that I, I knew of. And so I think music really became a way for me to be able to talk about what it was that was on my mind, especially when it came to adoption. And uh, through that, I kept on going. In college, I continued to do it. I was in a group called After School Special. That was the first real attempt at doing music that I had really pursued, was doing this rock rap band that was, again, very similar to Linkin Park. And at that time, there was a group called Gym Class Heroes. And so it was like more of a, a hardcore version of Gym Class Heroes, more of a light core version of, of Lincoln Park. So I was doing that, very happy about where we were getting. I just happened to, I think, stumble across this at a time when the digital revolution was happening. And so it was around like 2008, 2009, when I think that YouTube and a lot of the Asian Americans that were on YouTube were starting to do stuff. And I got very lucky that I got plugged in with some key people, including my, my current partners with International Secret Agents right now, uh, the Wong Fu guys and the Far East Movement guys. And then they became very big mentors for me and kind of provided opportunities for me to perform and to pursue my craft. So I got very lucky. It's just, it, we're all products of good timing, Jerry. And I was a product of really good timing in that moment and just really thrilled that they were able to give me an opportunity to, to show my stuff because I'm definitely, I was not good at that time. And it was only because it gave me opportunities to hopefully get better that I slowly progressed and hopefully got a little bit better. 
That's awesome, man. I think, you know, when, when people think about music production of really great events within the community and just somebody who's always been out there and supportive of everything in, in our space, they, they think about you. And oh. uh, no, it's true, man. I, I think we talk about representation a lot, especially in the last year and a half, as we've been unfortunately the target of much attention, negative attention as, as far as what representation means and uh, what advocacy means to uplift the voices in our community. But you, you've done it for a while, a long, long while. You, you mentioned you, you were adopted and you grew up in Southern California. That's not a common adoptee experience because many of our adoptee friends grow up in areas that are obviously not as diverse as Southern California. I mean, it's you, you lived your life, so it's hard to compare. But how much of where you grew up and just, you know, by chance, really, did that affect sort of your identity? Because, you know, not to generalize, but I think knowing our mutual friends and some of the other folks in the adoptive community that I don't see anybody like myself. I was the only Asian in town. It was just, you know, very, very few people. Tell us about that and, and how that impacted your desire to represent the voice because you've, you've been in the community for a very long time. Totally. You're from LA area too, yes? Yep. And so you, were, you grew up around this area as well. And so I think that maybe we're both aligned with the idea that Southern California in general, very diverse. And I grew up in Ventura County, which was an hour north of LA. And so even if I wasn't necessarily around a lot of Asian stuff or around a lot of things that maybe influenced my identity, I was still really close by it, and which is dramatically different than maybe somebody that grew up in the Midwest where they're not necessarily close, nor do they have the opportunity to be, be close to anything uh, resembling LA and, and the culture and the deep diversity, not even just with Asian people, but just with other cultures too, which I think heavily influences the people that you're around and hopefully creates a more empathetic community for others to grow up. Because when you're experiencing something and you have to be around things that aren't necessarily your point of view, that it really helps you, I think, come to terms with who you are and build your identity to understand things from different perspectives. And so I think that I got really lucky that I did grow up in Southern California and it, it is a very unique experience. And I, and I purposely recognize that that's not the experience that a lot of other people, let alone adoptees, uh, are able to have. And so I, am, I do think that it definitely influenced me in uh, a lot of ways. Ventura in general is a, not that it's the birthplace of punk rock music, nor is it a place where I think it's super, super recognizable for punk rock music. But like in the early 90s, 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of punk rock that came from that area. Pop punk specifically. I'm not going to pretend like I, I know punk at all. But like in that area, though, heavily influenced by rock music, punk music. And I think that really influenced my identity, which is why the, the type of hip hop and the type of music that I'm into is more alternative in sounding. Uh, and I think that that really, I think, created the, the direction that I went with my music. And so I went to a lot of concerts, a lot of punk rock, emo, emo music concerts. And I think that really, I think, created the, the type of music that I was into. And then also just being around, again, not a lot of Asian people, but there was definitely a, a Filipino and a Korean community in my city that I grew up in. And I was able to become friends with a lot of people and they became kind of my conduits to the Asian community. And they, they taught me what it was like to be Asian. Because at that time, Jerry, I think that being Asian was uh, hot import nights. It was <laughs> techno music. It was break dancing. And it was like boba and sushi. And that was basically, those were like the four things. If there was like a Venn diagram that, that created the Asian experience, if you put all of those things on the outskirts, Asian would be in the center of that. Right? <laughs> no, I, I flashbacks. And if Jerry, people did you go are to like, hot import nights? I did not. I, I did not. Um, 
I actually no, I, I did not. I, I know what you're talking about and magazine covers and you know sort of that lifestyle. Like I grew up with it. it was was not a very uh, key participant in it. When did you first fall in love with music and still wanted to perform? Obviously, again, I, I think being an adoptee Korean American, uh, different influences and different sort of pressures in terms of professional lines. What was what inspired you to do music? Because I mean, you've been doing music for for as long as people have known you. Let me turn that around on you. When did you first start listening to music? Because I want to see if this maybe follows my own story. Um, Who was the first artist that you listened to, Asian or non-Asian? You know, I I think because I, I was born in Korea, I came here, when I was eight, right? So I, I think mm-hmm. there's sort of popular music in Korea was always just sort of to be assumed that everybody sort of participated. Mm-hmm. So for for me, it was interesting because I think I don't even know if they were actually around in 92 when I moved here. But I think I just Googled it as I was talking. Sateji, right, was sort of the the big early mm-hmm. in our childhood, like, mm-hmm. you know, Korean pop group that I can probably point to and say that's a band name. Um, mm-hmm. But I think as kids, like, you know, you jump in the car and you listen to what your parents listen to. Um, I probably debunk some stereotypes. Like I'm a huge fan of like American oldies music mm-hmm. and just stuff that, you know, partially because my dad listened to K-Earth 101 in the car. K-Earth 101. I was about to say that. Yes. You, you know what was, side, quick sidebar, like I was listening to K-Earth a few months ago and they were playing like 80s music and I'm like, oh my God, this is what is considered oldies now because it's relatively old. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I felt old. But anyway, that's my musical thing. But like, you know, from a, because there's a difference between, I think, love of music from a consumer perspective mm. and then love of music from, holy shit, I can actually do this mm. and people will show up to listen to me sing or rap or however the, the evolution for you took place. Was it like a, was it like a talent show uh, in Ventura or you know, when you were down in San Diego for school? Like, when, when did you first perform and knew that this was a thing that you were good at, one, and two, that people uh, showed up for? That comes in many forms. So I think I first performed in like fourth grade. And it was, so I, I think I just had a natural inkling that I've wanted to perform, whether that's music or I did theater. And so I was really involved with youth theater in my city. And then I remember going to like a youth camp and they had a talent show. It's always the talent show. If you watch these high school dramas, these teen shows, it's always the talent show that everybody Oh, like that's the season finale. Somebody has to work on something and then perform it. And then at the end of it, somebody falls in love with you and you win the talent show. That's like the big, big moment. So for me, I remember performing for the first time. I think it was fourth grade. And I think it was a talent show, one of these youth competitions. And it was, I forget the song that I performed. It wasn't very good, I'm sure. But it was the experience of being able to be on stage. And and I think hopefully being in front of people that could hype you up. And it felt good. I like that feeling a lot. So I kept on chasing that feeling. And then when I got into sixth grade, seventh grade, I think it was really in seventh and eighth grade that I started performing out a little bit more. I was listening to a lot of, again, at that time, it was Eminem and a lot of alternative rock stuff. Even the rap music that I was listening to was more like, it, it, it wasn't like the deep 90s stuff that I should have been listening to because it it just, it wasn't on the radio at that time. But it was whatever was on the radio that I was able to get into and so through that, I was listening to a lot of like rappers like Eminem or Jurassic Five, or I think Common was somebody that I was really into. And then you know, it was mainly because they were being played on uh, Power 105, or no, no, not Power, um, on uh, K-Rock at, at that time. And so it was usually the rappers that they had on the rock stations that I was listening to. And so again, that influenced me. 
And then I think I just wrote lyrics to their songs and then turned their songs into something that I could perform. And then it just became a thing that I started working on. So it was that experience. And then it didn't fully turn into what it was going to be until college when I got into after school special. And then we started performing. And I remember the time that I realized that it was a thing that we could continue to do was we got to do a show at my college and we got paid to do the show. I think we got paid $200. I was like, oh my God, we get paid to like perform? Yes, please. And so we, we performed a show and got paid and it became a thing where I was like, well, nobody would pay us if we weren't good enough to be paid to do what it is. It's not like they're just going to pay anybody. And it was about the money. I want to like make that very clear. It wasn't that we got paid that I felt like, oh, that proves me as a musician. It was more that it was something that validated that experience. Just like any consumer business that as a business, you're like, I have no idea if I'm doing this thing correctly until somebody gives me a thing that makes me think that I'm doing things correctly. And so that was a way to validate what it was that we were doing. And so from there, we kept on going with it. And I guess we should have stopped because we weren't very good at the time, but we kept on doing it. And I think I'm a good example of practice makes perfect. And I'm sure that you've got examples of that too in your life where you start something, whether it's a sport or another activity, and you get better the more and more you do it. You just have to like put in the reps. Yeah, um, I agreed. I, you know, $200 when you're starting out is like, oh my God, right? Like As a college student too, that's like... Well, sure. I mean, the, the amount, again, you know, it's the impact of the validation, like you said, right? It's like, oh my God, somebody's willing to pay me to show up and and share my gifts. As a quick sidebar too, like I, I remember I threw a party in college in 2003 and paid James and Kevin from Far East Movement a whopping $300 to come play at sing at my party. And now it sounds just preposterous, you know, obviously knowing where they are now. I remember, you know, the same similar conversation. They were just like, oh, man, thanks for paying us, man. Because like we would have yeah. done it for free. But the fact that you're giving us even 300 bucks, like because then the next thing that they get is like, hey, that's our bar or like, hey, we're, you know, and that's where you start. And, and so I think it's also a good lesson for a lot of folks starting out there now. And I know the world is very different, right? Like, you know, the, the party with the guys, I personally lost a ton of money on it because I was a 20 year old and over evaluated my ability to hit a bar guarantee at, at Club Soho. But anyway, like the world is different. And I think the way that you get discovered is different. The way you can monetize your gifts is very, very different. And I would say for for you and the guys and everybody else who grew up pre-social media as we know it today, like the grind was different. You know, there were, there's very, very, there's no streaming. There's no YouTube. There's no building your own fan base, right? There still were all these, you needed to be invited and somebody needed to give you permission to perform. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the grind and the grit that I think you went through is a completely different journey than different challenges. Obviously, not it's not to say that it's easier now, but yeah, I, I think that's cool. I mean, what what kept you going? Did you want to make music your 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 day gig, and and if not, how did that parallel to you know how'd you pay your bills and and all that good stuff? I actually want to comment on the idea that you just mentioned about like paying paying talent. I think that's actually really valuable. That even even nowadays, that it's very difficult. Because a lot of artists just want to express their art and they don't know necessarily what their art is, is, is worth. And again, not that money dictates whatever those things are, but I do think that sometimes, like even myself, I just want to perform. And so whenever I do these, these shows, I, mean, I, like, I, I, I tell people very directly, like, just give me an opportunity. Like, you don't need to pay me, do whatever that. But I do think, though, that that is a, I've gotten into conversations with a lot of different people in the art scene, as well as the people that just purely put on the shows. 
And I think that the biggest thing is that we do want to, to respect the artists, that there should be some level of payment for their time and their energy, just as you would for anybody that comes and does a service for you. And I think that's something that I think that the community is getting a lot better at is not asking for favors anymore. Because a lot of artists, again, like including myself, we just want to do the thing. We don't care what it is. And so I think that it is really cool that even at that time, that again, they just felt grateful for the, the money that you gave them. And I felt grateful for whatever we got too, because I would have just done it for free as well. Like I still want to do stuff for free. <laughs> and uh, But I do think that the community is getting better. And one thing definitely to put out there is that even if it's a cool opportunity, whether or not it's $50 or $100 or a lot more than that, it still provides income for the artists to allow them to continue to do what they're doing. And hopefully that makes them become better mentors for the next generation that might be like, I don't know what to value my art. So I, I applaud right. you on that. No, Yeah. I mean, I, I firmly believe for, for those of us who are doing mission driven work, right? Like whether it is music or whether it is speaking or, you know, just sharing Asian American stories, no money, no mission, right? That is a fact of life, right? And it, it's hard for us to continue to do the things that we've passionate about if there's no financial engine to drive it. However, at the same time, money can't be your only mission, yeah. right? You need to be able to discern and, you know, do, you know, pro bono gigs, help other people out, mentor, coach, and, and, and you know, bring people up and, and coach them too. But, you know, I mean, we, we live, whatever your opinions are, we live in a capitalistic society and like, you know, we need money to survive and to continue to fund the work that we do. What kept you going? Because you've been, I don't know, your Instagram goes back nine years. You're like a super OG Instagrammer too. What, what, what kept you going in those early years? Because you're still creating music, which is awesome. The longevity and the, the tenacity is, is uh, you know, unmatched. The, again, thank you. I, I very, very greatly appreciate that. I think that for me, I get the question a lot of how does adoption affect you? Like, how does it affect you in your day to day? And without me being able to really point to say, oh, this is because I'm adopted, it's tough to separate anything from the adoption story and the way that you internalize so many feelings and needs. And I think just to get deep with you, that my need to continually stay involved and want to keep on doing things comes from, I think, this idea as an adoptee that I was abandoned as a, as a baby and this need to feel like that I belong to something. And so I think this strong need to belong to something, I think, really impacts my journey and wanting to be so involved and to want to reconnect with my Asian culture, as well as just being around people that accept me. And whether or not it was going to be the music community, whether or not it was going to be the Asian American community, I was just seeking something that felt like I belonged to something. And so I think getting involved in the Asian American movement a, a little while ago and being able to feel like that I was included in it and that I had space, that, that was an incredible feeling. It's a feeling that I want everybody to feel because it's a powerful feeling. And through that, I think really built up the tenacity to want to just continue to stay involved. So I think that even if it's not necessarily like, oh, it's because I'm adopted, it's kind of because I'm adopted, probably. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to, I think, single that out, right? Whether you are adopted or whether you are not, I think we are continuing to evolve, learn, unlearn, and all the things above into sort of understanding and, and defining and redefining for ourselves what it means to be Korean American, Asian American, however you identify. But ultimately, I think shared experiences or at least the desire to want to relate, the resonance is is powerful. When I started this show, the, the whole point of this was to celebrate the diversity of our stories. And yet, every single story will hit you in some way, shape, or form because our all, all of our experiences, while they're so unique, are, are super resonant and, and they overlap so much. 
And, and I think as somebody who got to know you after you did this, you know, seven years ago, you released a, a documentary sort of documenting your journey back to Korea and then sort of in, in search of that. Why was that important for you to do? And looking back and obviously the, the topic of uh, adoptees and rights and citizenship is uh, picking up steam again. Uh, there's a been, for, for good and bad reasons, I think a lot of, again, renewed attention on it. Um, a lot of people point to your documentary. A lot of friends of ours personally will point to your documentary and your story to say, hey, that's what inspired me to own my identity, to 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 think about that. You've been a storyteller and you've worn your identity very publicly for a long time, which I think is super inspiring. But curious to know, you know, what inspired that and, and sort of, you know, many, many years after the fact, uh, reflective thoughts on that. So the documentary that Jerry's talking about is one where I went back to Korea and I got extremely lucky that I was able to meet my biological family, which again, I acknowledge is something very specific about my story. And it's so different for everybody in, in their individual um, direction with how they approach their adoption and whether or not they're able to or want to make any kind of reconnection with their biological family. So I was able to reconnect with my biological family. And then I found out that they were still married. And then they also had, I had two siblings, including one identical twin brother that I'd never known about. And so for me, originally, even before I was going to be able to meet them, or even before I even knew that they were in the picture, I still wanted to go out there and be able to film something from the adoptee standpoint in Korea. And so my intention, would, regardless of whether or not I was going to meet them, was to go out there and film something. It, it definitely wouldn't have been as, I think, interesting if it was just me out in Korea as an adoptee. Like, that's not, that's not a very, like, interesting story. But even at that time, though, and especially within the adoptee world, there's a lot of, there wasn't a lot of content. There was zero content, maybe like, not, no, I shouldn't say zero. I apologize for that. There was like 1.001% of Asian American media was adoptee stories. And so uh, shout out to the Greg D.M. Borshin. Uh, she, she's like the adoptee documentary golden standard bearer of documentaries. So shout out to her and a lot of people that were making adoptee films back in the uh, 80s and 90s, because those are been very impactful on the adoptee community. But for me, there wasn't a lot of content beyond what was already out there. Maybe that was like three or four pieces of content, five pieces of content. I got, I'm eating my words right now. But so I wanted to go out there and just create something that was adoptee related, even if it was just going to be me experiencing Korea through the adoptee lens. I thought that maybe that would be interesting and that it would just continue to add to the plethora of content that would hopefully continue to exist within the adoptee community. So I think that you need different perspectives, uh, some from different lenses to get people to see a community as a whole. And I was hoping to be able to participate in that. So again, the more and more that we see Asian American films and Asian American TV shows that just normalize whatever it is we're doing, the more I think that our community reflects on that. And I think it's better for us in the overall, even if some of the stuff's good or some of the stuff's bad, it just the more portraits you have of the community just makes you feel more normal. So that's what I was trying to do with my content and that I got really lucky with the adoptee series that I was able to meet my biological family. We filmed it and we put it up on YouTube. And the YouTube thing was very intentional too. It, I wanted to make sure that it was going to be accessible to as many people as possible. And I thought that it was from, I was really developing my taste and my thoughts and the process through the, the YouTube community because I was living through that in 2008, 2009. And so I was very intentional to create something that was YouTube-y and that was like kind of half documentary, half vlog style where we were going to be able to talk about these things in a, a more accessible way. 
So I think that, that was my intention going into it at that point. And I think that I continued to work on stuff that was adoptee related because it is a very important community to me. And I've been able to, I think, meet a lot of adoptees and a lot of different people in the community. And they've been big inspirations for myself. And so whatever I can do to continue to stay involved in it, I think is a it's it's a privilege to be able to just be involved in the stuff that's going on. So I'm I'm very lucky. And then including meeting the Joshi guys. I love I love it. I love meeting different people in the community that are telling different stories in their way. So it's it's all been a, a huge blessing. What do you want to do with your music long term? What is what is the Dan Matthews legacy? So I think the Dan legacy is I've currently got a set of music that I'm going to be putting out. I finally, I feel really good about the place that the songs are out. So I'm going to continue to put those out. Whether or not after this project, I am very intentional with the music that I continue to put out. In other words, I don't know if necessarily that I'm going to be intentionally putting together another album to put out next year. I think that the stuff that I'm doing is the stuff that I want to write at this period. And that if there's more stuff that I want to write about later on, Maybe I'll put out another song or another two songs, but I think I'm very intentional about this project that it'll be about 10 to 11 songs that I've definitely invested and put time and energy into. And so in the future, I would like to still be making music. I really enjoy the the process of production and being able to collaborate with people. So maybe I would help other people produce their music. Maybe I would go more electronic and I would start just working on other types of music that doesn't involve my own specific voice. And so I think that could be the, the next direction, but I'm hoping that the stuff that I'm per- currently putting out is a is going to be positive and, and, and exciting for the community as is, and that it'll hopefully continue to stay out there. Let's talk about this specific uh, album and this set of songs that you are uh, in the middle of releasing. There's meaning behind every song, at least the ones that have been out so far. Where where does where did and where does the inspiration continue to come from? Because it is storytelling. It is a way to tell the world. What your thoughts are what your priorities are and and you know because it's just beyond beats and words right it, it has to have an impact and so take us through sort of your process in how you create how you how you, you know when it goes from an idea to what we can hear so for this current collection of music i definitely had intention to do things in different different series and so the first series of songs kind of match up together it's three songs I'm currently putting out the second series of songs, which kind of match thematically. I'm going to have a third series of songs and then a fourth series of songs. So there's four series I'm going to be putting out. The first series of songs are more indie. They have more of like an indie, like rock kind of vibe, which I really love. And I'm like, I, I, I just, I'm so happy that I was able to work with the, the producers that I work with. Shout out to Big Banana and Chucky Kim and the collaborators, Priska, Hollis and Alex from Run River North. They were just so incredible on these tracks. Uh, Because they're dream collaborations. I've always wanted to work with Hollis. I've always wanted to work with Alex. I continually work with Prisca on stuff. And she's uh, uh, just my my ongoing number one person that I I write music with. So I've wanted it to have a certain vibe and a certain feeling. It sounds more indie. It sounds like very, if you know the the group called Hone, Honez, Hone. But that was like a big inspiration for these set of songs that are more like, not that they're down tempo, but they're more like just indie vibe. I listened to a lot of Glass Animals and then a lot of uh, Cold War Kids before I, I wrote these songs. So that's kind of the vibe for these three. Uh, the first song is called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And it's the one that features Hollis. It's the first single I put out. And I was so excited to put out this one because it definitely was about feelings of loneliness. And this idea, especially during the pandemic, I, it's, a, it's a pandemic song. It's tough to deny that. But it was written from these ideas of like just feeling lonely 
and wanting to connect with people and feeling like that our, our loss of connection throughout the pandemic and how we, we, we adapt to that. So that song's about that. Time of Your Life is about this idea of, again, just to be a little bit dark, but I don't, I don't know what happens after we're done with the time of our lives. And so it's about rectifying those feelings and thinking about that a little bit more and what legacy means. And then the third song is called Sob Rock, which features Prisca. And it's about this idea that I can't, I'm not very good at emoting. I'm like a very like, like I, I, I have, I'm a happy guy, but sometimes I can't emote and it, it really bothers me that I can't do that. And I do wonder if it's an adoptee thing that I think that I lack empathy. It, maybe that's something that, that comes through, through being disconnected from your family of origin or being like having the, the separation at the very beginning of life. Anyway, so the lyrics are about this idea that I, I can't emote and I really wish that I could communicate how I feel romantically as well as just as a friend to people. So those are the, that set of songs. This current set of songs are more, uh, more like upbeat slash sad boy. And so that's like a good, it's not a good place for <laughs> a, a 30 year old to be, to be like a, a sad boy. But these, these next set of songs are very like self-destructive and about different things like that. The third set of songs are going to be songs that are like more 80s themed. And so they have like more of like an 80s vibe that I'm excited about. And then heavily inspired by The weekend. And then the fourth set of songs are more like rock inspired. So it's going to be more like live instrumentation. So that's kind of like where these, these different sets land. What do you have to share with for young Dan's out there? People who are creating music. Obviously, again, as we talked about before, it's a completely different world to be creating music. You know, there, there are now people, as I understand it, uh, creating music specifically for social media sharing platforms that are even in, you know, shorter, shorter 30 second format just so they can pick up and, and do that. But as somebody who's been himself creating music, collaborating with, again, uh, some big players and big names and working alongside legendary folks, if, if somebody wants to create music now, specifically meaningful music, as, as you do through your words and, and through your collaborations, what would you tell somebody wanting to get started now? I would tell them that the most important thing is that you should do it if you love it and if it fulfills a meaning in your life. For instance, for me, when I was doing music at the very beginning, that it really fulfilled a lot of meaning for me. It allowed me to connect with people and allowed me to moat and be able to write stuff that I was really, really proud of. So as long as it's fulfilling something for you, just keep on doing it. As long as you're doing it authentically and you're writing stuff that you really like, like screw everybody else. It doesn't matter. Just create your art and then just put it out there. And then if you really, really want to get good at it, that you need to be networking. You, you still need to, even if people are still living digitally, meet more people digitally, get on Twitch streams, get on people's podcasts, get on different like Instagram lives and go and connect with your, your fellow listeners and your fellow musicians. Because regardless of the hustle when we first started and the hustle being more in person and like more going out to like physical things, the hustle still exists now in a different way. And that hustle is being in clubhouses, being in different, again, Twitch streams, be, being like guests on different like things. And so that's a different kind of hustle that hopefully people are able to itch. And again, the more and more people that you meet, the better you get at your craft, hopefully, because they're going to hopefully up your game. I, I think that the best thing that I did was be around people that were way better than me and listening to artists that are way better than me because I was like, oh, oh crap, I got to like, if I'm not their level, why am I even doing this? And so it helped me in a good way to like help push me to become better musically. So I think just get around people that are better than you and uh, do that. And then also just, learn the hustle, network as much as possible. And then finally, just be a good person. I think that especially with the way that the online community is now, that 
as long as you remain a good person and you stay true to yourself, people are going to want to like do stuff with you and they're going to want to put you on your shows. And again, even if you're not good, like I wasn't very good when I first started and I still question that all the time now, but I generally think that I was a, a very polite person whenever I got booked for a show and I'm very grateful for every single opportunity that I get. And so that gratitude, I think really carries strong. I think that's a critical part of your, I don't even want to say a personal brand, man. I think that's just part of who you are and, and why people love you so much authenticity just you care you're a good friend you hype everybody up and support everybody else and and i think you're right and i think in a world where everybody's trying to hack stuff right everybody's trying to get to you know follow these three rules for whatever right and the thing you can't hack you can't shortcut or outsource is just being a damn good human being and it's not with the advice of you know be good to somebody else cuz you never know what they're going to do for you screw what the reciprocity is just do good if it comes back great if it doesn't it doesn't you know and i think you've attracted great members of our our community many mutual friends because of just this notion of being in the long run being in the long game to amplify voices and and not doing any of that stuff so if people can't tell by now i'm a huge fan of dan and uh i have nothing but amazing things to say and Every time, you know, so this is the third time that we've been on the mic together. Technically, I was in the room for the Chanchi show recording, uh, but you've always said yes. And you've always, even though you're making time to come on our shows, you're the one who's always saying thank you more and, and being more grateful for the opportunity. And so, and, and I would say that anybody who knows you personally or just has worked with you w- would say those things. And so that's what I think about when I think about Dan. And I think that is the reason why people love you. And to be frank, like the music and the talent is, is, is a bonus. <laughs> so thank you, Jerry. No, that thank you for gassing me up. Is that what that term means? Thank you for saying that. that I really do appreciate. And that, yeah, the end of the day, just be a good person. Nobody has the time to like work with dicks nowadays and just be, why, why make it more difficult for yourself by, by being an asshole? Just be a good person. People want to work with you. What you'll get there when you get there, if you need to. That being said, I do want to say that like sometimes this stuff works out. You just never know whether or not timing, you might not be a good person. I don't know. There's like a lot of like not good people out there that just end up getting amazing opportunities. So it's also one of those things where I also don't believe in the cliches 100% and that you can still get there by hacking. It just, it won't be as pure. Maybe you just won't enjoy it as much. Well, sure. And then there's two things. There's objective success that we can measure in the world, right? Whether it is financially or otherwise. And then there's, can you live with yourself and go to sleep at night? And, you know, can you, a lot of the things that, you know, I do are really driven by, can I tell my two kids with a straight face that I'm doing this only for them, but how I'm doing it, can I be proud of, right? And so, you know, that I think those questions, as we as we grow a little older, as we have a variety of life experiences that really a whole year and a half to just reflect as, as the world has paused and uh, a lot of start stop in our in our respective universes the last uh, you know eighteen months but but I'm excited for you and you know share, share with us so I know and other people who know you well know you beyond the musician but is there anything else that you are working on project wise I know you do a lot of work with you know festivals and, and amplifying our community's voices what are a couple of things that you can share with us that gets you excited and or that you're working on in in the background. I'm just generally excited. And I think that you would relate to this, that there's just more opportunities. I think that people have really taken notice for good reasons and bad reasons. 
of, of the Asian American community. And I think because of that, it's really elevated some of the things that we're doing and just getting more people to think and care about our community. Uh, and so I think that um, in general, there's just more stuff. And so that's, that's what I'm excited about. There's like more opportunities. There's people that are doing mid-autumn moon festivals this upcoming September that like that was a touch point that like nobody thought about before. And so it's cool that people are just paying attention to these different uh, intricate holidays because it's not easy. There's just a lot of like stuff that's going on. And the more and more holidays and things that you add to it, there's more, there's just more noise and more things to drown it out. But it's cool that, that they are putting attention, that it's not just noise. It's just another cool thing. And so I'm just generally excited. That there's more opportunities. And I'm excited by the idea that even with your two children, that the world that they're growing up in, that it's something that they are just seeing more faces that look like them. They're seeing more stories reflected. They've got a father that's a part of the community doing stuff that's being served by the community. And that's something for them to be proud of as they get older and being able to like get integrated into the community they're going to exist in. And that we don't, we have no idea what this is going to look like in 20 years. Um, but I think a good anecdote to put the icing on that cake that I think about sometimes is I was doing a conversation with an adoptee friend of mine about two weeks ago. And we were talking about it. We, we came from two different perspectives. And so my perspective was, oh, isn't it great that we had to like, I shouldn't say the word great, but isn't it interesting that we had to, when we were growing up, that we had to feel self-hate and that we had to feel these things because we got to be a part of the movement and that like now things are awesome and that we get to experience this new movement that we got to be a part of. And then he told me, Dan, isn't it crappy that we had to go through that? And that hopefully the kids that are coming around now don't feel the self-hate because probably by the time they get older, maybe they'll be in a better position to like create even better things that don't have to do just with Asian identity. They can progress the world in a much better way. And then I was like, no, you're right. That actually, I would, if I could feel more confident and do a felt better when I was younger, maybe I'd be a more confident person and maybe I would be doing even more stuff now. So again, to each their own, you never know what you're going to end up being, but I do agree. I think that it's awesome that the new generation has more opportunities for some of this stuff. And that the idea of being Asian American isn't even something they're going to necessarily have to worry about. Hopefully. I think that we're going through the stuff so they don't have to do it later on. And even the stuff that we had to go through is it's a, yeah, it's always it's 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 better that they're gonna not have to go through that. So I, I look forward to seeing what happens in the next twenty years because we just don't know what's gonna be. It is an evolution, and I think I, I think the, the your your attitude is is a right one, which is sure. I, ideally speaking, we we don't have to go through any of this stuff. But taking a step back, we're creating a better world so that younger kids don't have to go through it. There are still perhaps not as as high numbers, but transracial and transnational adoptees kids younger kids uh, who are going to look up to you and to everybody else sharing their story to feel more confident. What what I want to see more of and, you know, not calling out the community, but calling out myself as well, is that at least in our Korean American community uh, in America, adoptees make up about 10% of our community. And I, I want to challenge ourselves to reflect on how much of that representation is being seen in community organizations, in leadership positions, in even our storytelling, because why are we not amplifying our own people's stories? And, and we can get, you know, we don't have time for it today. There's obviously a lot of uh, deep reasons for, for why that's been the case for so long. But we live in a world of democratized content. Here you and I are just, you know, two friends talking and we're going to get this message out to 
whoever wants to listen to it, you put your documentary specifically on YouTube so that it'd be accessible. And so my, my hope, not just my hope, uh, but something that I know that you are actively working on as I, as am I, and, and so many of our friends is to make sure that everybody feels a little less alone and that people have the confidence to do really whatever they want um, and to believe that they can because you've done it. Other people have done it. And so as we close, one last one last thought. Your, any messages of inspiration, pers- uh, insp- I almost said perspiration, inspiration, <laughs> reflection in the form of our uh, classic The Earth Americans letter. Uh, help us finish out the show, Dan Matthews, and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, be grateful. Gratitude goes a long way. To end this on a theme that we talked about earlier in the episode, I just, I'm grateful for everything. You got to be grateful for the lives that we are currently living. The fact that I can talk to you on a Zoom call right now and we can be conversing and being able to do the things that we're doing. So I'm just very grateful for that. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for the people that are around me. And I'm grateful that I'm in the community. And hopefully we just continue to do this and we keep on moving. Keep on trucking, everybody. Dan, a.k.a. Dan, check me out on social. And the community is grateful for you, brother. Uh, keep on doing what you're doing, both in your music and in your community work, um, and even in your day job, which actually is community work. So International Secret Agents is where you can find Dan during the day. Dan, a.k.a. Dan, is where you can find him everywhere. Check out his music. Support him. It's hard to make money as a musician these days. We all know that. So listen, share, amplify, and let's build on the work that Dan has done for more than a decade in amplifying not only his own Korean-American, Asian-American voice, but uh, making sure that it is an easier path for so many of our future generations. So Dan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're not going to do it now, but we're going to ask KJ to loop in one of your songs. What music should close us out? One of your new ones. Let's have you play Sob Rock, the one that's playing with Prisca. That's fam. Perfect. That's, that's one of my favorite songs. I'll send it over. And Prisca is a, is a friend of the show and and friend of everybody. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're awesome. Uh, so for folks closing us out, we are going to be closing out with Dan featuring Prisca. And tell me the name of the song one more time. Sob Rock. Awesome. Sob Rock. Thank you, everybody. Please continue to stay safe. And Dan, I will see you in person very soon, I hope. Bye, everybody.